Amen. Take your Bibles, if you would, and open up to the book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 22. Matthew chapter 22. I often wonder how it's going to be singing around the throne. We think about being able to worship our God and Savior for all of eternity. The Bible tells us that eye has not seen or ear heard what he's preparing for us. And I don't know about you, but there are beautiful places here in this world that we go to and we're just, we're stunned by, we're awed by. But if we can't even imagine, that's basically what it said, we, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like. I think that there'll probably be some Baptocostals. <laughs> we, will, we will move from our very sophisticated, that's a good word, sophisticated way of worshiping to probably just let loose, you know. But again, but again, we must remember it's the Spirit that's to move us. We must remember that God's not the author of confusion. So let's never forget that when we are there to praise God. And when we're praising God, the attention needs to be upon Him. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 34. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, <laughs> that just tickles me, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying, Master, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two suggestions. On these two recommendations. On these two commandments. Hang all the law and the prophets. I'm going to stop there. Let's pray. My Father in heaven, I pray that you would continue to use this service. Thank you for the giving time. Thank you for the choir. Thank you for the announcements that we've had. Thank you for the specials and the singing. But Lord, we've come to be able to hear from your word. And I pray that you would teach us and I pray that you would give us all that we need mentally, spiritually, emotionally, and physically this morning. I pray that your grace would work in us and that you would do the only office work that you can do. Lord, I need you today. I ask that you would be with those who may be without Christ. I pray that they would come to know you. And Lord, I pray for those of us who know you that we would be better Christians because of being here this morning. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. You can be seated.
It's a delight to be able to have with us this morning some of a good portion of Brother Costin's immediate family. He celebrated his 80th birthday. Yeah, let's give him a round of applause. Amen. He doesn't, he doesn't look 80, and uh, not at all. I think, mean, man, if I, I hope I look that good when I get 80. And uh, we're so thankful to be able to have family and some friends that are here also that came in to be able to celebrate with him. And so we're delighted to be able to have uh, all those folks with us. This morning, I'd like to speak to you for a few moments on the highest kind of love. The highest kind of love. I would agree, and I believe probably most of you are like me. I would like to think that, that love is the greatest and sweetest of all emotions. To love and to be loved is, is uh, one of the most satisfying and securing, uh, securing feelings that one can have. Uh, I don't know that there's anything else uh, that gives greater satisfaction to know that you are uh, loved by someone and, and, and actually loved unconditionally by someone. There have been multitude of poems and, and songs and plays and, and movies made about love. And there's no denying the fact, I personally believe, that love truly is the greatest of experiences. But I believe that because of how God has determined to reveal himself to us. See, if there was a greater way to express, uh, to, to, to make us feel secure or to, to know that we are appreciated, uh, to know that we are loved, I believe that God would have done it another way. If there was a greater emotion that we could encapsulate and have in our heart and take with us, God would have chosen another uh, way to be able to uh, let us know that he cares for us. But what did he use? He, he used his son and, and he sent his son to reveal how he loves us. And I think when we talk about love, there's many thoughts that can run through our minds and and there's many thoughts on this topic. Some merely think of love as an emotion. Others look at love as an action. You know, some of you know, and you've probably experienced it because human relationships, that some people have twisted love to make it all about themselves. But there are those who understand, or at least try to understand, that love from God's perspective is much different than the way the world understands love. See, in our text here, in our text we find out about love. Not a human love, not, not a normal love, but a divine love that only God can give. Now, I want to remind you that it's Wednesday of Passion Week. Jesus is going to be crucified on Friday. And it's like, almost like a last will and testament you know, that he's, he's giving. Almost talking about some things that are extremely important. And, and so the Pharisees come to ask Jesus a question. And he starts to expound on their question. Sadducees have been put to silence. And I can't help but think that after Jesus had muzzled them, 
That's basically what it means when he says, put them to silence. He muzzled them. They wanted to say more, but they couldn't because they had been made a fool out of. They wanted to make Jesus a fool, but Jesus had made them look extremely foolish. And I'm sure that the Sadducees had posed the same question to the Pharisees in the past. And because the Pharisees believed in the resurrection and because Jesus believed in the resurrection, they thought that they would get Jesus. Remember, we talked about that last week. They thought that they would trap Jesus with that. But Jesus put the Sadducees to silence. And I can't help but think, remember now, these are humans just like we're humans. And they were the arch enemies. The Pharisees and Sadducees did not get along because politically and religiously and all that kind of stuff. But I can't help but think that the Pharisees were almost glad. They almost were giddy. I, I, could, almost, I could almost see them chuckling to themselves. Hey, the Sadducees who comment about everything have nothing to say. Jesus finally shut them up and now we've got the answer. And so now the Pharisees got a little bit more boldness after the Sadducees had become embarrassed. And now the Pharisees are back up to it. They, they, they've got a newfound energy now to try and trap Jesus one more time, to try and discredit Jesus and destroy Jesus. And I want you to take a look. If you take your program there, fill this in here. The tactic of the Pharisees, verses 34 and 35. The tactic of the Pharisees. I want you to take a look at letter A there. There's a technician, the technician. So what are you talking about here? They got one who was versed in the law of Moses. Take a look at verse 34. But then when the Pharisees had heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they were gathered together. Then one of them, which was a lawyer, asked him a question, tempting him and saying. What they did was they didn't just get anybody. They got a a lawyer who was trained. They got a man who was an expert in the law. As a matter of fact, some commentators believe that he was probably one that handled great religious and social disputes. This guy was par excellence. He, he, was, he was actually, the, the Bible tells us, another portion of scripture, that he was a scribe. And a scribe was one who copied the law. Not only did they copy the law, but they were an authority on the law. They knew the law inside and out. They, they could quote the law. They taught the law. I mean, if anybody would be an expert at being able to trap Jesus, when it came to asking him a question about the law, it would be this guy. I mean, the Pharisees had already been embarrassed. They had already been made a, 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 a laughingstock. And so this time, they're like, okay, we're pulling out the big guns. We're going to make sure that we've got the best of the best. The Sadducees have been put to silence, and now we're going to be able to show up the Sadducees, and we're going to be able to discredit Jesus. You say, where do you find that at? Well, take a look at verse 34. It's all in there. And they were gathered together. They were gathered together. Can't you see them all huddled like this? All right, now, come on, God. All right. Who knew? Let's take a vote. Who knows the law better than anybody else? Okay. It's Joe? Okay, we're going to take Joe. I mean, I can see them huddled together talking about, well, we just got, we're, we're ready to go. So they get this expert to be able to try and trap Jesus. And what, what does he do? Well, 
Take a look at what the, the Bible says. Asking him a question, tempting him, saying, let her be, the tempting, the tempting. Though this man did see wisdom in the way Jesus answered the Pharisees, this man was, he was a chameleon, this lawyer. He played both sides of the fence. Folks, some things never change. <laughs> you say, how do you know that he saw wisdom in the way Jesus answered the Sadducees? Mark chapter 12 and verse 28 tells us that. But he wasn't completely straightforward with Jesus because he was being used to tempt Jesus. See what it says there? It says, and tempting him. Or this is, th this is the way we would say it. And testing him. They were testing Jesus. He as well as the rest of the Pharisees were looking and wanting for Jesus to fail the test that they were giving to him. They, they wanted to discredit Jesus so that he could lose influence over the people. So they're saying, let's give him a test to reveal that he is not the true Messiah, that he is a heretic. Not only do we see the tactic of the Pharisees, but number two, the topic of the Pharisees. The topic of the Pharisees. Take a look at verse 36. Master... Which is the great commandment in the law? Letter A, if you're taking notes, the background. The Pharisees, and I think it's important that we take a look at this just for a moment. The Pharisees saw Moses as the most important and supreme figure in all of Scripture that they had. Amen. Moses, th there was nobody higher than Moses. Amen. And they looked at it and they said, well, who else spoke to God face to face? It was Moses. Who else did God give the law to? It was Moses. Who was God's spokesman? It was Moses. Who was it delivered the nation out of slavery? It was Moses. And in their mind's eye, there was no one greater than Moses. And the Pharisees wanted to discredit Jesus by asking him something in order that he would say something contradictory to Moses. So if they could get Jesus to say something contradictory to Moses, then they've got him. See, because letter B, their belief, the belief. See, the, the belief of the Pharisees was that they believed that Jesus... And his teachings attacked the teachings of Moses. I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 5 here. Jesus, we see his deity in the Sermon on the Mount here. We see that he already knew that they were going to try and go after him this way. If they could get Jesus to say something contrary to Moses, then they've got him. They did believe that his teachings were against the teachings of Moses. Take a look at Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Think not. Now their belief was, the Pharisees' belief was that Jesus was teaching contrary to the law of Moses. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Amen. See, Jesus was emphasizing God's law. It had not, he had not altered the law, and he, would, and he would not alter the law. The reason that he came was to fulfill the law. Instead, what the Pharisees were, were, were really upset about was that he was changing their traditions. 
they couldn't get him on the teachings, but because he was changing their traditions, they were going after him, saying, oh, you're teaching contrary to the law of Moses. Isn't it amazing? Once again, some things just don't change. Many times, as human beings, we will elevate tradition to the level of Scripture. And they did the same thing there. They elevated tradition, their preferences, to the same level as Scripture. And listen, when you do that, that's when you're on a slippery slope. See, our message should never change. Our doctrine should never change. But whether we have pews or chairs or yoga mats laying down, maybe, maybe yoga is probably a bad thing to say in the church, I, I don't know. <laughs> or, or wrestling mats, there we go, wrestling mats on the, the floor here to be able to worship the Lord, that's neither here nor there. Whether we have service at 9.30 or at 8.30 in the morning, or at 1.30 in the afternoon, that's neither here nor there. The Bible tells us it's the first day of the week. doesn't tell us the time. It just tells us the first day of the week. And if we're not careful, we start to elevate. And you know what happens then in a church? I know I'm taking a rabbit trail, but I'm the pastor. I'm allowed to do that. You know what happens in a church? Instead of praying about it, You know, I, I'm going to be honest with you. It is easier to deal with adultery in the church than it is gossip. And folks, I'm going to tell you as your pastor, if somebody starts talking about something, you just need to look at them and say, look, I don't want to listen to that garbage. You need to get your heart right. Because you're gossiping. Now let's have a word of prayer. See, I can, I can, I can deal with adultery because I know it's gone. I can look at that person. Okay, you're you're wrong, and and uh, you're wrong. We need to do this. You can't do this. You can't do that. But man, you get that gossip thing going. It's like now he said this, and she said that, and they said this, and this. I, I pray to the Lord. I say, God, I need the wisdom of Solomon here. I need the wisdom of Solomon. I can't figure this thing out. It's nonsense. Anyway, that's how it's done with traditions. We need to make sure, folks, that we're not elevating our traditions to the level of Scripture. Their belief was that Jesus was coming to destroy the law when he was just changing their traditions. But take a look at the business. What's the issue at hand? Let her see the business. This man addresses Jesus as a teacher and and master and, and then proceeds to ask him a question. He says, what is the greatest commandment in the law? He's basically saying, what is the greatest commandment that Moses gave? 
In the life of religious leaders in that day, there was much debate about that. They constantly discussed the issue of the number one law. And over the years, many rabbis had determined that there were basically 613 separate laws. And you thought open Bible had a lot of standards, you know. They divided them into two areas. There were the affirmative laws, and then, which were 248 different laws. One law for every part of the human body. I have no idea why they did it that way, but that's the way that they did it. And then there was the negative laws, of which there were 365, one for every day of the year. So there was the affirmative and negative, and then they divided them up even further to light laws and heavy laws. Light laws were the semi-optional ones. The heavy laws were the binding ones. And, and because no one really could keep all 613 of the laws, the commandments, there had to be some leeway, so they broke them up into light and to, to heavy. Isn't it amazing when man gets involved to try and accommodate their personal theology to the Bible instead of the Bible changing their theology? How messed up it gets And so then, there, now the debate was going on, and it had to do with what was really important and what was not really important. And because of that, the different sects, the religious sects, they would, they would figure out their own system, their own schemes, and they would live by certain laws. And they thought, well, likely, Jesus being a, a rabbi, a teacher, that he had his own scheme concerning living by the law. And they thought for sure that Jesus had probably created some, uh, some unorthodox teaching on the greatest commandment. So we see the topic and we, we see the tactic of the Pharisees, but look at the teaching of Jesus with me in verses 37 through 40. Verses 37 through 40. Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul and with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like unto it, Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. I want you to see first, letter A, the response of Jesus. The response of Jesus. It was quick and to the point. Jesus was in total accord with the Mosaic law. Instead of, look at what he did, instead of superseding Moses, you know what he did? He quoted Moses. Take a look at Deuteronomy chapter 5, if you would please. Turn on Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you would, and verse 5. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5. The Shema. Take a look at verse 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. This is what Jesus quotes here. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy might. Verses 4 and 5 of Deuteronomy chapter 6 are the most familiar verses that Moses ever wrote. And this portion of Scripture, really Deuteronomy 6, 4 and, uh, through 9, and then Deuteronomy 11, 13 through 21, and Exodus 13, 1 through actually verse 16 in Exodus chapter 13. These portions of Scripture were very important to the Jew. And they were written down on parchments, and they were placed in phylacteries, and they would wear them 
on their forehead and on their left arm. You would see, you, maybe if you've seen an Orthodox Jew or whatever, uh, uh, you would see them on there. There are little boxes that they would have here and here. And they would wear them when they would go into prayer. But they also, they also revered this scripture so much. They thought it was some of the most important that Moses had ever written. They also uh, placed what is called a mezuzah on the front door of their homes with Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5 in it. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God. Twice a day, every faithful Jew would stop what they were doing and recite this statement. And you know what Jesus did? He showed that he was in solidarity with Moses instead of opposing Moses. He was already knocking out the legs from underneath the Pharisees once again. What do we see here? Well, we see the response of Jesus, but then we see the right kind of love. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verses 4 and 5. And we're told to love God with all our heart, our soul, and mind. And I want to break this down for you to, to help you understand it a little bit. This is the way that we're to love. If this is really the highest kind of love, then what does this mean? Jesus says that this is the way that we are to love God. First, he says, take a look there. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, with all thy mind. We see here the heart. It's an act. It's a commitment. It's a choice. There can be some strong emotion, but that's not the point. You know, we think of heart as emotional, but that's not what Jesus is saying. He's saying this is a command. So he's saying, look, this command, you, you can't work up an emotion. Matter of fact, we've got to control our emotions at times, don't we? Because they get out of hand. He's commanding us to love, so it is a choice. It's love that chooses to love. It's a love of action, not a love of emotion. And it's the highest kind of love because it's a love of dedication. There was a very unusual military funeral in California in December of 2013. Sergeant First Class Joseph Gant, who fought in both World War II and the Korean War, was laid to rest. He had been captured in Korea in 1950 and died the following year. But his body was not returned for many years and his death was never confirmed by the North Koreans. His wife, Clara, waited for decades for her husband to come back. She regularly went to meetings with the government officials to seek information about what had happened. Clara even bought a house and had a professionally landscaped, so all Joseph would have to do when he came home was go fishing. Now that's a good wife. <laughs> she was 94 years old when his remains were finally brought home for a military funeral with full honors. It wasn't the homecoming she dreamed of, but she finally knew his fate. Clara told the reporters who interviewed her, he told me if anything happened to him, he wanted me to remarry. And I told him, no, no, no. Here I am, still his wife, 
and I am going to remain his wife until the day the Lord calls me home. See, true love, godly love, is not temporary or transient. Love is commitment. It's a love that's meant to last. Love is not based upon everything going right. Love is not based upon emotional feelings, but it's a choice of the will. Listen, folks, casual commitments to one another and to Christ do not produce a foundation for deep and meaningful relationships. Amen. See, instead, we should love others as God loved us with an unfailing love that never ends. That's what the kind of love that Jesus is talking about, the highest kind of love, the purest love there is, a self-sacrifice kind of love. I want you to see the requirements. What are the requirements of this love? What are the requirements of this love? Jesus gives some distinctive marks in this passage of Scripture right here of what it looks to really, what does it mean to really love God? If you were to say, Pastor, I want to know what it means to really love God. I want to have this, this highest love. I, I want to enjoy God the way that I should. And Jesus makes it very clear about the commitment, the commitment he desires from each person that says that they love him. That says that they love him. We say a lot of things, don't we? And we let that word love roll off our tongues very quickly. I remember when my daughter, Alexis, was dating my son-in-law. My son-in-law. I don't know what his name is, but my son-in-law. When, when she was dating Phil, I looked at Phil and I said, let me tell you something. He asked if he could date her, which every guy that wants to date a young girl ought to ask the dad. It's called respectful. You say, man, that's old-fashioned. Yeah, but you ought to have respect for the family. I mean, he's the one who clothed her, that fed her, that brought her up. And I mean, he's the one who got her to the point where you're interested in her. You ought to have at least enough respect for the husband and the, the mom and the dad to at least go to them and say, hey, would you mind if I date your daughter? And so he did. And I said, are you crazy? No. I said, yes, you can date my daughter. I said, but you need to understand something. Number one, there will be no physical touching. Do you understand that? Yes. I said, because if you do touch my daughter in any way, shape, or form, I am going to lose my Christianity on you. He said, it's no problem. I said, okay, just so we're clear. And I would ask him from time to time, are you touching my daughter? If you want to hold hands with somebody, hold mine. <laughs> kind of turn you off, huh? I never told him that, but I probably should have. And that was right. The first time she ever kissed a boy was when she got married, other than her dad. Well, she was kissing a boy there. She kissed a man when she kissed me. <laughs> 
I'm going to forget why I told you this story because I keep going. <laughs> they're, they're requirements. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I, I, I told him, I said, I said, the other thing is, you don't tell my daughter you love her. Mm-mm. 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 You do not tell my daughter you love her. I'll let you know when you can tell him, t- tell her that you love her. You say, well, what? Yeah. Folks, she's mine. She's mine. Isn't that a little bit controlling? Yes, it is. It is. But why did you do that? Why? Because we throw around love like it's nothing. I was down at the wilds while he was working at the wilds, and he comes up to me and said, Pastor, I got to talk to you. I'm like, sure. He goes, I got, I got to tell you something. Goes, what's, the, what's that, Phil? He goes, it slipped out. I said, what slipped out? He goes, I, 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 I either, I, I, I told her that I loved her. I said, don't you ever do that again. <laughs> I told her the same thing. I said, you don't tell him. Oh. Why did I do that? Because I want them to understand the quality and the value of that word. I love you. And too many times we throw that word around. Remember I was saying, we say so many times, I love you, God. If I were to ask every single Christian in here, if I were to say, do you love God? I believe everyone to the one would say, yes, I love God. I love God. But see, he he goes a little bit further. I want you to see something here. Every single time he mentions heart, will, mind, he says, with all thy. Every time, take a look at it. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. Do you know what he's saying? It's a complete and personal choice that you're going to make. You're going to make that choice. The first distinctive is the highest form of love is the heart. It's the personal being. It's the, it's the volition of the will. It's more than just having a good feeling about God. He's saying, I want you to love God with your will. It involves the will. The second distinctive, he says, is the soul. That's the emotional aspect. We can put it this way. Matthew chapter 26 and verse 38, the Bible says that Jesus said his soul was exceedingly sorrowful. So when he's saying the heart, he's saying, I want you to love me with the the choice, the the volition with the uh, soul, I'm wanting to lo- you to love me with the emotions. You've heard me say before that we ought to ask God to heighten our affections, our desire for him. We ought to pray that. And good Lord, give me a greater desire for you. So it involves the will. And then the third distinctive of the highest form of love is the mind. Jesus replaces the word might in Deuteronomy chapter 6. So did Jesus misquote 
Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, because in Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 5, he says might, and Jesus used the word mind. And I believe that it was done on purpose to reveal that we are to love God, this reason, with purpose or intention. For example, we would say this, he had the mind to go cut the grass. Okay? So when he replaces that, it's the idea, that, that's the idea that Jesus is stressing, that it, it also covers part of the will as well. So the heart and the mind are almost connected. It's very, very hard to separate the two. And in the, really in the Jewish thinking is they're one and the same. That they, they work together. They're maybe uh, uh, two sides of a different coin, uh, the same coin. And then Mark adds, the book of Mark adds strength. It has to do with our physical capacities. So we would say that the highest form of love is an intelligent love. It's a feeling love. It's a willing love. And it's a serving love. That is what it means to love God with our complete being. He says, not with part of your heart, not with some of your heart. You know, we're very good at segregating, are we not? I mean, what do we say on Sundays? That's the Lord's day. Wait a second, every day is God's day. He created it. We're very good at segregation in our own lives. And okay, well, I've, now I've got to do my Christian thing, and then I've got to do the work thing, and then I've got to do the family thing, and then I've got to... And God doesn't say, like, I, I want you to love me with part of your heart. He doesn't say that I want you to, I, I want you to love me with, with most of your heart. He doesn't say that I want you to love me with 99.9% .9 of your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength. No, he says, I want you to love me with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength. I'll put it to you this way. You say, well, then what does that look like? He doesn't want people just fulfilling religious acts. See, we get so caught up in just doing what we're supposed to do without even recognizing God for who he is. He doesn't want people just going through the motions. He doesn't want Christians just fulfilling their duty. He wants people that are consumed with him. Well, how does that live out? Well, I, I want to be consumed with God, okay? The person, here you go, it's really simple. The person who truly loves God with all of their heart, their soul, their mind, their strength, is the one who trusts and obey them. You say, what? What did Jesus say? If ye love me, keep my commandments. Amen. It's really that simple. We can say that we love God all that we want, but if we truly love God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our being, we will trust and obey Him. But I want you to see, lastly here, the recipients of the highest love. Not only is Jesus our God, well, Jesus is God in the flesh, but to be a recipient of this kind of love, but there are others that are to be recipients of this kind of love. Take a look at verse 39. And the second is like unto it, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Not only is God to be a recipient of this kind of love, but so is, in some respects, our neighbor. See, love for God cannot be divorced from love from one another. 
Hey, listen, listen, church. Please don't tell me that you are right with God, and that, but you're not right with another brother or sister in here. It's impossible. You are a fraud. You are a fake. You are a hypocrite. You cannot have ill feelings towards another brother or sister of Christ in this body here and say that you love God the way that you should. You cannot divorce love of God from love from your neighbor. And it's interesting, he uses the word neighbor. Because we remember the question that was asked, well then, Lord, who's my neighbor? We found out about that. So if you've got a problem with another brother or sister in this, in this body here, and you're wondering why maybe your prayers are going unanswered, you're wondering why the blessings of God are not upon your life, you're wondering why life is so difficult for you, maybe it's because you're trying to play Mr. or Mrs. Two-Face. I'm not trying to be unkind or ugly or mean. But I've said it from, from here before. And I'll say it again. If we're not willing to put things aside, God's never going to bless this work. If we're not willing to just let things go, God's not going to bless this work. And we can talk and we can raise our hands and we can shout and sing and, yeah, uh, uh, praise the Lord and all this. Jesus saved me and we can be all, all up during the music time. Oh, yeah, all right. And then, and then we're like, man, I can't stand her. Man, I don't want to get this kind of... Yes, Jesus, yes. Amen, amen, amen. Jesus says, I don't want people like that. I, I don't want people like... You, you, you're... you're you're no better, I'm no better than the Pharisees, than the Sadducees. That's exactly who these people are. The only difference between us and them is that we dress different than they do. I've never heard a message on love be this stern. But sometimes, love is strong. See, love of God cannot be divorced from love of one's neighbor. Jesus quotes Leviticus chapter 19 and verse 18. Thou shalt not avenge. Oh, here we go. Nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people. Hmm. I didn't realize that, but I guess that's where I got that little caveat from. But thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. You know what he does? He puts this verse right here on the same level as the Shema. That's exactly what he does. When you, listen, the reason you're not loving people right, listen, the reason you've got problems with other people, here you go, here you go. The reason that you don't love other people right is because you don't love God right. That's the reason. I guess I'll pick up my next check and that'll be it. <laughs> Brother Wimbley's available. I mean, you know, he's here. He's, 
He's still, God's working his life, so maybe we can, you can elect him as your next pastor. The reason that you don't love people right is because you don't love God. Oh, you, you cannot say that. What kind of right do you have to say that? Jesus said you can't divorce the love of God from the love of neighbor. He put them on the same level. Don't get upset with me. Get upset with Jesus. I, I, I'm just telling you what he said. I'm just repeating what he said. See, you think your problem was with that other person. No, your problem is with you and Jesus. And the problem doesn't lie with Jesus. So the problem lies with you. See, when you love God, right? Let's put it this way then. We'll put it in the positive. We'll flip it around. When you love God right, you will love others right. He says, I'll love somebody as I love myself. I got more, but we're going to end there. I don't want to get run out on a stick here. Can I tell you, Christianity is really not that complicated. It's not that complicated. See, we, we've messed it all up. You say, well, what's Christianity all about? Love God and love people. That's it. Everything else falls on. When you love God the way that you should, you'll love people the way that you should. And then guess what? Guess what? Then you won't covet what your neighbor has because you love them the right way. Then you won't gossip about that other person because you love them the right way. That you don't have to worry about. See, we're so worried about keeping this rule and this rule and this rule. We are just like the Pharisees, folks. I'm telling you, we're just like them. And we got all these 613 rules, boy. And we got the light ones, you know, and then we got the really heavy ones. Don't break the big, the biggies, you know, the adulteries and the homosexuality. But we can talk about people and we can undermine and all that kind of stuff, you know, these are the biggies. These are, we are no better than them. Can you not see us in this portion of Scripture? And see, if we love God the way that we should, we're not going to lust after our neighbor's wife. If we love God the way that we should, we're not going to lie one to another. If we love God the way that we should, we're not going to steal from one another. If we love God the way that we should, we're not going to take his name in vain. If we love God the way that we should, we're not going to be unkind. Listen, all of Scripture rests on this. Love God and love people. 